You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me for today's question and answer session. Right now in California, it's 12 noon on a Thursday afternoon. I don't know what time it is in your particular time zone. I know that over the course of this Q&A, we'll have viewers from a lot of different places. And that's one thing I'm very glad for. Uh, I have an online Bible commentary that is completely free, and it covers the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I, I know that no Bible commentary works for everybody. But there's some people who find my commentary helpful, find it useful in their own Bible study, maybe even if they're a teacher or a preacher or a Sunday school leader, or just for their own personal life and understanding of the Bible. Uh, we do these weekly question answer times because I really value the time that I can get together and just sort of spontaneously ask questions that come in. Of course, I can't answer every question that comes in. Usually there's several questions at the end that I couldn't get to. And I don't know the answer to every question. There's some things I'll just have to say, I really don't know, or I'll have to look that up, or I'll have to do some research. But I'm happy to come here on a Thursday afternoon and do the best I can. I do want to say one thing before we get into our lead question today. We have begun to put transcripts of these question and answer sessions on the Enduring Word website. If you just go to the Enduring Word website, that's EnduringWord.com, go under the blog menu, and you'll see the question and answer thing. Now, we've always made our past uh, videos available, or at least accessible, from that blog entry of question and answer, but now we're starting to post the transcripts. So. Uh, this question and answer today, the transcript will be available, I would say probably within a week, maybe four or five days, and it'll be up there online. So if you want to go back and read, uh, we don't record necessarily absolutely every word that's said during the broadcast. There's some editing that goes on, but pretty much we're giving to you what was talked about in the question and answer that week. Okay, our lead question for today, I'm calling it a question about New Testament Greek comes from Danielle. Danielle, thank you for your question. And here's her question, I'll read it. She says, hi, I have a burning question for you. I've begun studying the Bible. I'll stop right there. Danielle, congratulations. I'm so glad that you're studying the Bible. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful adventure is in front of you as you begin to really study the Bible. So she continues on and she says this. I came across a post online you made about Hebrews 4. My own learning has brought forth a huge question. You say that the works that are referred to in Hebrews 4.4 are works as in deeds and actions. James chapter 2 verse 14 also clearly talks about deeds and actions, calling them works as well. But the original ancient Greek words used there are different. In James chapter 2, verse 14, the word works is the Greek word erga, meaning deeds, actions, undertakings. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, the word works is the Greek word ergon, 
which means labor, toil, application. How can you comment on this? Uh, many thanks and warm regards. Uh, well, Danielle, thank you so much for your questions. And I just want to say it again. Congratulations on studying the Bible. As I said before, there's a beautiful adventure in front of you. One, not only of knowledge, which is good in itself, but more importantly, of deeper relationship with God. Uh, I love God's word and I love studying the Bible because it is a place where I have wonderful, rich fellowship with God. So congratulations, first and foremost, on that. Second thing I need to say before I get to your questions regarding Hebrews 4.4 and James chapter 2, verse 14, is I am not a Greek expert. I cannot pick up a Greek New Testament and read it and translate it on the fly. I can pick out some Greek words. I know something a little bit about Greek grammar and structure, but I am not a Greek expert. I'm beginning to learn more about these original languages, and I'm very grateful for that. And I would like to learn more biblical Greek and Hebrew. However, I, I've put my focus in just the verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the scriptures. And uh, again, having a written commentary on the entire Bible, I think that's work enough. Maybe if I uh, put a real focus on Greek and Hebrew, I wouldn't have the time to do that. But I'm happy to be doing that. It's always a good thing to learn more and more about the original languages. Now, you're here contrasting the word works in Hebrews 4.4 4 and in James chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read Hebrews 4.4. 4. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, works in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, is ergon, or ergon, I should say the genitive plural of the root ergon. Okay, so it, it's a different vowel sound with the O in the middle. It's more of a long O, ergon, in Hebrews 4.4. 4. The root word is ergon, gon and gon. Okay, that's the word. It's the genitive plural of the root ergon. Now, in James chapter 2, verse 14, we read this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, works in James chapter 2, verse 14 is the noun erga, but the root is ergon, just it's in the accusative plural form in James chapter 2, verse 14. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4, and in James chapter 2, verse 14, it is the same root word, ergon, for works. It's the same word. Now, one thing, or excuse me, one way that Koine or New Testament Greek, but by the way, when we say New Testament Greek, we're talking about this form of the Greek language that is not classical Greek, which is like what Homer and other ancient writers, Herodotus, wrote in, nor is it modern Greek, what you would hear spoken if you went to Greece today. I mean, there's connections between the languages, but New Testament Greek is called Koine Greek. 
It was the Greek of the common person spoken in the days of the New Testament. Now, not only the days of the New Testament, Koine Greek existed before and after New Testament times. But again, one way that Koine or New Testament Greek is different from the English language is that English uses word order in a sentence to communicate many things. What is the subject? What is the predicate? How those things work together? A lot of grammar and meaning in English is communicated by word order. Now, in Greek, those parts of a sentence and the structure are not communicated by word order. It's a different way of thinking altogether. Instead, those parts of a sentence and the structure are indicated by variations on the root noun or the root verb. Something is added or changed to the root word. And that's exactly what we have here in both Hebrews chapter 4 and in James chapter 2, verse 14. They use the same root noun, ergon. But in Hebrews, it is in the accusative plural. And in James, it is in the genitive plural. That accounts for the differences in the words. Ergon in Hebrews 4.4 4, and erga in James 2.14. It's not different words. It's different grammar, different forms of the same root word. Now, Danielle, I, I bring this up just to make a few points. Number one, Danielle, keep studying. <laughs> keep studying the Bible. This is great. I'm so thrilled to hear that you're studying the Bible and that you're getting your feet wet in the, in, in the original languages. Keep going. That's a marvelous thing. Secondly, look to the root of the Greek noun or verb, remembering that the form of the root will change as it's applied in a sentence. And how that form of the root noun or verb changes is very instructive. It tells us if it's in the singular or in the plural, uh, if it's accusative or genitive, if it's the subject or the predicate, it tells us all sorts of different things. So remember, that's how the ancient Greek language works. But here's something else to remember. Remember that translation is often determined much more by context than by what a word means in a dictionary. Now, this isn't just true for New Testament Greek. It's true for every language. We commonly use words in our everyday language that may or may not particularly match the definition of a word in a dictionary, but everybody understands what we mean. What we can't do is just pick the meaning or the sense of the word that best fits our purpose and ignore the context. You'll find many people do this in their study. They'll look up a Greek word and they'll see, okay, there's three or four or five different senses of this word. Well, I'll just pick the one that best suits my purpose. No, you can't do that. You have to look to the context and see what the best use of the word is in that context. It's easy for us to think that we can translate things precisely or exactly all the time, when many times um, 
we, we have to go a little bit deeper and get what the word is in context. Now, let me just say one more thing, too. Sometimes the Bible will use similar words and not make a significant distinction between them. I'll give you an example. When you read your New Testament and see the word, word, there, it's usually the ancient Greek word logos or rhema. Now, sometimes there is a distinction to be made between logos and rhema, but sometimes not. Sometimes there is no significant difference in the context. So where you can say, oh, well, this says logos instead of rhema. It means this or the other way around. Again, context is key in understanding translation. And that's why we want to keep studying our Bible. That's my great word to you, Danielle. Keep studying. This is wonderful. I pray that God would continue to bless you and guide you as you study his word. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing that you're doing. Okay, let me go now to the side chat window here and look up a comment. I'm going to just take one that comes to my eyes right away before I scroll up to the top. Ruth Gordon. Hi, Ruth. It's great to see you again. Ruth says, uh, Zodiate's Hebrew Greek study Bible is a great resource for being able to look up words as you study in English and is available in the New American Standard, the King James and more. Yes, I agree, Ruth. There are many tremendous Greek and Hebrew resources out there. We live, especially because of computer technology, in something of a golden age of Hebrew and Greek resources. Take full advantage of great resources like that. Thank you for that, Ruth. Okay, let me go up to the top here and take Gene's question. Gene asks, are there modern prophets today that warn the body of Christ through dreams and visions. All right, Gene, um, let me speak to your question. First of all, with an understanding, I, I give this disclaimer often. I'll probably do it several more times during uh, this question and answer and again on other question and answer sessions we have. This is an area where there are Christians who love the Lord and... Uh, honor his word, who disagree on this. So I'm not trying to say that I have the exclusive answer, but I'm going to give you my answer to that question. Okay, number one, um, I do believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today, including such gifts as prophecy. However, I am very slow. You might almost say I'm allergic to calling anybody a prophet. Now, you might say, David, you're just making a distinction without a difference here. What is the difference between saying, here's someone that God sometimes uses with the gift of prophecy, between calling that person that and calling them a prophet? In my mind, there's a significant difference, and I'll explain why. When you give somebody the title prophet, it changes things. Here comes the prophet in our midst. Um, it changes how people perceive them, and it often changes how they perceive themselves. I would prefer 
that today in the modern world, in the 21st century, we don't call anybody a prophet. We just recognize that there are people through whom God may exercise the gift of prophecy. Okay. Having said that, I would also say that God nowhere speaks to a prophet today or speaks prophecy. I just contradicted myself there, but God nowhere speaks with the gift of prophecy through somebody today in a infallible way. Now, the problem is not with God speaking. God is God. He can only speak infallibly. But what an individual does not have is the gift of hearing and understanding and communicating what God has spoken perfectly. That's what the writers of the New Testament, and you could also say the Old Testament, but that's what the writers of the Bible had. They had a particular gift by God's inspiration, giving them the ability to perfectly uh, hear, to perfectly explain, to perfectly relate what God's word is today. There is nobody who has that gift today and has not since the New Testament was written. So while God may speak through a believer and what God speaks is perfect, but how that individual receives it can be imperfect. That's why we always give far and away the primary place to God's word, this perfect word that God has given us. We, we don't make any mistake on that. I also hesitate to think that God gives any particular person a word for the church universally. In other words, I think that the gift of prophecy, if it's legitimate, and let's admit there's a lot of illegitimate foolishness that goes on in the charismatic world today under that heading prophecy, but when the gift of prophecy is legitimately exercised, almost always it's for a local context, <clears throat> for a particular individual, for a particular church, and that's it. God isn't speaking to the church universal through a modern-day person with the gift of prophecy. God has spoken to the church universal, and it's here. It's not in a word of modern contemporary prophecy. So that being understood, could it be possible that God would warn somebody through a dream or a vision in the body of Christ today, either an individual or a congregation? I do think that that's possible. Just like every prophetic word, as John says in his letter, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, words of prophecy must be judged, judged by, number one, the scriptures themselves, and number two, by wise, discerning, mature Christians who have a sense of what the Holy Spirit would say. Um, but I, I think that what you're saying is possible if it's understood in that context. All right. Uh, Jane asks this question. Hi, David. I just wanted to thank you for all your hard work for us biblical folks. Love your Psalm study and how and I now read Psalm 5 and 6 every day as they fit my current circumstance as well. Well, Jane, I'm thrilled to hear that. And I'm very happy that on our YouTube channel, we're releasing 
a uh, Psalms video every week. And uh, we'll probably get to the place where we're releasing a couple of them a week because all through the year 2020, I'm doing videos throughout the entire book of Psalms. And as those come in and get going, we will post those as the weeks go by. Thank you for that, Jane. Christian asks this question. Hi, Pastor David. Is it normal for a new convert to sometimes feel unsure of his or her salvation? Christian, I would say that's entirely normal. Uh, we, we shouldn't feel like it's something unusual or ground shaking if a new convert experiences some kind of um, lack of assurance regarding their salvation. That, that's why it's a good and important thing. One of the first things someone should do if they're dealing with a new convert is just walk them through what the Bible says about the assurance of our salvation. So yes, Christian, it's not unusual, and it's something that is good, that is helpful to instruct Christians on um, at a uh, young age, so to speak, in their own Christian life. Let me continue on. Uh, Christana asked this question. Uh, in heaven, we... Will we remember our earthly lives or people who weren't saved? Second question, in the millennial kingdom, will God bring extinct animals like dinosaurs back to life? Okay, Christana, two great questions. Number one, in heaven, will we remember our earthly lives or people who weren't saved? The best answer I could give you is yes. We don't have much information on this biblically, but we do have a story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. Now, I very deliberately call it a story. I don't call it a parable. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where there was a rich man who was greedy and selfish and didn't care about anybody, and there was a godly beggar. They both died. They went to the world beyond. And in that story, and I believe it's a story, I believe it's a real account that Jesus, nowhere did Jesus say that uh, the rich man and Lazarus was a parable. I believe he's telling us about something that really happened. And in the story that Jesus tells us, the rich man remembered that he had brothers that were still alive on the earth. So that gives us some indication. Now, I know people might disagree. Well, David, it's a parable. It's not a story. You shouldn't take that literally. I, I know, but I'm just relating this as I understand this. That in that parable, Jesus told us that in the world beyond, he indicated for us that there would be a knowledge of what life we had on earth and people we knew on earth. Now, there are some people who have a very difficult time with that. I know people who are virtually tortured over the question, how could it be heaven for me if I knew that a dear friend or relative was not in heaven with me if they were in hell? <clears throat> All I can say is God will know how to make that right. God will know. And, and I believe that the glory and satisfaction and goodness of heaven and the revelation of God that we have in heaven will be so great, so transcendent, that honestly, it, it won't concern us then 
the way we think it will concern us. But that's for heaven and that heavenly experience. Your second question, Kristana, is this. Um, in the millennial kingdom, will God bring extinct animals like dinosaurs back to life? Kristana, I cannot give you a Bible answer to that question because I don't think the Bible gives us any consideration of that, other to say that there will be animal life on earth. But it doesn't give us any indication about um, extinct animal life. All I can say is, wouldn't that be awesome if that was the case? Wow, that would be an amazing world, the millennial earth. Maybe it'll happen. I don't know. I just can't give you a Bible answer on that because the Bible doesn't tell us. But that is a great question, though, Kristana. Okay, Jose asks this question. What is the Father's will according to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jose, again, I think this is a great question. May I just say, I am very impressed by the high level of questions that we get on our Thursday question and answer program. I suppose that every once in a while we get sort of a weird or dumb question. Yeah, those come in from time to time. But uh, overall, what a great quality of questions. That, that makes me feel good about the people who are viewing this, um, these videos. Anyway, uh, Jose's question is simply this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Well, what is that will? I would explain it first and foremost this way. Somebody came to Jesus and said, what should we do to do the works of God? How do we do God's works? How do we do what God wants us to do? Jesus said, if you want to do the works of God, I'm paraphrasing here, you must believe on him whom he has sent. The first and most primary way we keep the will of the Father is to put our faith on Jesus Christ, on who he is and on what he has done for us, especially what he has done for us at the cross and the empty tomb. That's the number one way. And then the other ways are just by obeying what God tells us to do in the scriptures. God tells us to live a certain way. And he expects those who find salvation by faith in Jesus Christ to live and walk that way. So I would just say that's doing the will, but it begins, it's primary, the first and foremost, the irreducible is simply this, believing on him whom he has sent, believing on Jesus, putting your faith in the one that the Father has sent, that is putting your faith on Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. Hope that helps you there, Jose. Our next question comes from Tyler. Uh, again, wonderful to see so many regular uh, viewers to our Thursday afternoon time. Tyler says, what's the difference between logos and rhema? Some say logos is the written word and rhema is the spoken word or active word. What's an example of a rhema word from God? Well, First of all, Tyler, we need to recognize this, that when we're talking about these Greek words, logos and rhema, obviously, we're only talking about the New Testament. 
So we're not talking about the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, there can be a distinction between those words. And it's really just the sense in which you say that Logos has more of an emphasis on the written word and Rhema has more of an emphasis on the spoken word or active word. But Tyler, here's what you need to understand. Those distinctions are not absolute. By context, you will find that logos is sometimes used in a different sense than the written word. When it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, John chapter 1, verse 1, when it says that, it's using the word logos. Jesus is not the written word of God. He's the living word of God. He is the word, the logos. So it's fine to understand that sometimes there is a distinction one with having more of an emphasis on the written word, the other with having more of an emphasis on um, the spoken word or the active word, but they're not absolute differences. And again, context has to determine that. And you're asking, what's an example of a rhema word from God? Well, I, I don't know if you're talking about biblically speaking, you just do a word search uh, for rhema and look at how that's used. I, I would say that if it was true that God gave somebody a prophetic word today, it would be a rhema word, not on par with the scriptures, but it would be a spoken, active word from God. So again, we just need to understand the distinction between those words is not absolute, and we really have to look at the context to see what it means. Hope that helps you there, Tyler. Susanna asks, are the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28 still in effect to this day? Susanna, I would answer the question just like this. Only if a person is under the old covenant. The old covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai uh, during the Exodus some people call it the Sinai Covenant. Some people call it the Mosaic Covenant. You can definitely call it the Old Covenant. This covenant that God made with Israel, that covenant had three basic features. The law, the sacrifices, because nobody could keep the law perfectly. You need sacrifices. And then thirdly, the choice. And the choice was to be either between blessings for obedience or curses for disobedience. Those are aspects of the old covenant. Someone who lives under the old covenant by uh, genetic heritage or by choice, you could say that in some measure, those curses could apply to them, but not for those who are under the new covenant. And when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, when a person puts their trust, their reliance, and they cling to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, especially what he did at the cross and the empty tomb, then that person is brought into the new covenant community. And in the new covenant community, we recognize that Jesus bore the curse for us. Jesus crucified on the cross, received in himself the curse of God, 
which he did not deserve, that we did deserve, but it was placed upon him instead of us. So no curse under the new covenant. Yes, there is curse under the old covenant. Hope that helps you there, Susanna. Uh, Tanya asks, or just says, God bless you. Good afternoon from London. Wonderful, Tanya. Glad you could join us in from London. Susan says, could you please remind everyone about your morning videos, Troubled Times? I find them very uplifting and think others will also. Thank you, Pastor Guzik. Well, Susan, thank you for that. You give me up to do a little bit of a plug. I told you that we're putting out Psalms videos every week. And now I was informed by Andrea, our admin director here at Enduring Word, that we are, in fact, putting out two Psalms a week now, which I'm very pleased about. This uh, teaching through the Psalms right here in my own video studio here for my YouTube audience and beyond. That's been a very meaningful thing for me this year, and I look forward to completing it uh, here in the year 220. But not only do we that, do that, but also on the YouTube channel, if you subscribe, you'll receive a notification, click the notifications, and you will see that every morning I do a brief devotional. Oh, four, five, six minutes long. It's just a devotional word that I bring to you every morning it gets released at 6 a.m. Pacific time, whatever that is for you in your particular time zone. But yeah, if you subscribe to the channel and click notifications, um, you get that. And, and one other thing, the devotional is also available as a podcast. You can go to iTunes or to Google Play and look up the Enduring Word daily devotional podcast and you can get it as a podcast as is much of our content, including this question and answer, it's also available in podcast format. So I hope that helps you. Thank you, Susan, for saying that. Uh, Donald says this, when the spirit goes back to God who gave it, what happens to the soul because they are different? Well, Donald, again, we're talking about something about this distinction between the soul and the spirit. I do believe that the scriptures teach, just like you're saying, that there is some distinction to be made between soul and spirit. However, sometimes the Bible uses those words interchangeably. Again, you have to get back to the context. Sometimes the Bible uses the terms soul and spirit merely to refer to the non-material part of a person, the immaterial part of a person. Sometimes it uses it that way. Other times it uses it in a way that makes a distinction between the soul and the spirit. But uh, in the sense that you're talking about, they are the same and they go together before God. The immaterial part of my being and my spirit related, but not always the same. There's some difference there. They go to God upon the death of a believer. So that's just simply what I would say to you about that. Thank you for your question there, Donald. Dina says, dementia or Alzheimer is a disease from demons. How to overcome? Well, Dina, bless you for your question. Uh, when somebody brings a question about dementia or Alzheimer's, um, it's always painful 
isn't it? Uh, because you, you think, well, this is a person whose life in some way is being touched by this. And I would simply put uh, dementia or Alzheimer's in the category of many other diseases, which um, there is a biological, non-demonic, if I could say that, non-spiritually caused, at least directly, form of dementia and Alzheimer's that's just caused by brain deterioration, by certain things that happen as people get older and things. There's that aspect that really has nothing to do. But we also believe we have scriptural basis for this and by observation as well, that there are times when Satan can attack people and Satan's attack can either give disease or injury results or mimic those results. So if somebody had dementia or Alzheimer, I would do both. I would take them to the best doctors I could and get them the best treatment I could. And I would also pray for them and pray against any demonic attack or strategy without giving in to any kind of excessive fear or paranoia about it. Maybe it is beyond our ability to know uh, if something is called just by a, a biological illness or whether it's caused by a spiritual thing or some strange combination of the both. But we can do that. We can get somebody the best medical care and we can pray very strong taking appropriate authority in the Holy Spirit to pray and stand with brothers and sisters who need to do what the book of James says, that's simply to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let me continue on. Agnes says, hi, Brother David. Why do some Protestants say that Mary is not the mother of God? Isn't Jesus fully God and man? Okay, Agnes, this is a very good question. And the reason why some Protestants are uncomfortable with the phrase, Mary, the mother of God, it really has nothing to do with Mary and her being the mother of Jesus Christ. They would just say that Mary is not the source of the deity of Jesus. We understand that, do we not? that Jesus existed as God, as the eternal second person of the Trinity before he ever added humanity to his deity and was conceived in Mary's womb. So Mary is not the source, the cause of Jesus's deity. And that's what makes some Protestants uncomfortable about the title Mother of God. Uh, of, of course, anybody who believes the Bible should be able to say, Mary was the mother of Jesus Christ, who is God. However, Mary was not the source of Jesus's deity. So I, I guess I can just explain why that title Mother of God. Now, the title Mother of God also has historic theological significance. It's been a phrase that has divided people in the church, especially between our Orthodox brothers and sisters and either Roman Catholics or Protestants. 
But again, uh, the phrase itself, if properly understood, might be able to be accepted, but it's a phrase that often um, lends itself to being misunderstood. I hope that helps you there, Agnes. Sono asks a question. Excuse me why I take a drink here. Hey, David, here's my question. How can we be praying for you and your family? God bless you, brother. Well, you know, regarding my family, you can always pray for my family, uh, for my wonderful wife, Ingalil, um, who braved uh, many things to go visit her parents in Sweden. And when I mean braved, braved uh, the travel situation where people are nervous about traveling because of the coronavirus. But um, she's well, and I'm so happy that she can be over there with her family uh, for a visit, her mother and father and other relatives like her brother and such. Um, miss her, of course, but she'll be back soon enough. Uh, so you can always pray for, in just general, God's blessing upon my dear wife and my three adult children and my grandchildren. So uh, just a general prayer of blessing is always great. Uh, but we, we appreciate that and appreciate that God gives us continued wisdom on what ministry will look like for us in the future. Because God's doing so much through the Enduring Word website and through the YouTube channel and other ways that we just want to be very sensitive to how God is working and moving and be very grateful for that. So. Thank you, Sona. I appreciate that. I, I believe that the ministry God has given me, his ministry really, with Enduring Word, I believe it's remarkably blessed, far beyond what I would ever dream or expect. And I know one great reason, I'm not saying it's the only reason, but one great reason it is blessed is because I have a lot of people praying for me and for the work that God is doing in and through Enduring Word. So you can imagine, I'm delighted when people want to pray. So thank you, Sono. Adonis asks this question. Grace and peace to you. The paraclete is defined as he in English translations of the Bible. Where can I find that in the Greek text? As far as I can tell, Gender isn't assigned to the paraclete. Well, Adonis, you're right, but you can see this just in English Bible translations. When Jesus speaks of the helper in John chapters 15 and 16, uh, maybe 14, 15 and 16, his upper room discourse with his disciples, when Jesus speaks of the paraclete, the helper, Jesus refers to him as a he. That's just right there in the original language. As for resources that will help you understand the Greek and, and break it down, the first place I would recommend you go is a place called the Blue Letter Bible. The Blue Letter Bible, uh, blb.org. This is a wonderful online ministry that has an exhaustive uh, Bible resource, including Tremendous Greek and Hebrew resources, absolutely free. Blue Letter Bible, just Google that or blb.org. Go there, 
it'll be an immense help to you. Uh, they also very kindly have hosted my Bible commentary and have been doing so since, believe it or not, 1996 is when the good folks at Blue Letter Bible first put my Bible commentary on their Bible resource site. So um, you can uh, look that up for yourself. Go, there's a great place where you can find Greek and Hebrew resources. Nicole says, my concern is my church. It has gone from doing a verse-by-verse -verse study of the Bible to doing a topical lesson with less of God's word and more social justice. What can I do besides leave? Nicole, um, I'll be very straightforward with you. There's not a lot you can do besides leave other than speak to people in leadership. I don't know the leadership structure of your church. I don't know if it's best for you to speak to the senior pastor or pastors on staff or elders, or, but speak to somebody in leadership or authority and ask them without accusing. You don't need to be, what you're looking for when you have this conversation with them, you're looking for clarity. You want to know, say, I have noticed this change in the pulpit ministry of our church. I guess what you want to know is, number one, is this deliberate? Uh, because I suppose somebody could get into bad habits accidentally. They do a series and intend to go back to verse-by-verse -verse teaching, but it's so amazing, the series, that they just kind of stay in there, What, whatever. But you could, number one... Um, Ask if this change is deliberate. And then number two, ask if the change is permanent. And if the change by the leadership is deliberate and permanent, um, you know, walking outside with a picket sign, trying to make other people sour against the leadership of the church, it's not right. It's not good. Then um, if there is a church that better suits where you're at as a believer and better suits the needs of your family, uh, then you should go to that church. Uh, go to the other church, not the present church that you're in. But again, I, I just wanted this. If you speak with leadership, don't speak in an accusatory manner. It just won't do any good. And it's not necessary. What you're simply looking for is clarity. Are these pulpit changes deliberate? And are they permanent? And you can let them know your opinion. Well, I don't care for it much, but I just wanted to know those things. Okay, I hope that helps you, Nicole. And I'm sorry to hear about your difficulty. I, I do believe that it is best for churches to anchor the pulpit ministry on the verse-by-verse -verse teaching through books of the Bible. It doesn't mean that that's the only thing that has to be done. No, not by any means. It doesn't mean that topical... Uh, messages or series are forbidden, not by any means, but I just believe that a foundation of a church's pulpit ministry is best done by going through books of the Bible to do the best that we can to get the whole counsel of God's word. All right. Uh, Aaron says, hello, is there a place I could find all of your wife's teachings? Well, I hope that right now my wife is listening to this. Uh, again, she's visiting her parents and they normally tune in. I hope they are. 
because um, I'm sure, Aaron, that you're not the only one who would be interested in this. And all I can say is if you or others you know would be um, excited about being able to access the teaching ministry of my wife, Inga Lil Guzik, on the Enduring Word website, please let me know. Uh, leave a comment, something, and uh, maybe that will spur us on to do it. Uh, but right now, the only way that you could do that is by going around to various churches uh, where she has served, such as Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. I don't know if there's any online teaching. There's a good chance that there's not, um, but I don't know for sure. Uh, or churches that she has done conference teaching or retreats for. Um, but wouldn't it be awesome to get some centralized teaching for my wife, Ingalil, and put it there on the Enduring Word website? Great question there, Aaron. Uh, Lenore Bradshaw says this. Hold on. I lost the question. Hi, David. Your teaching has been a real blessing to me. The way you teach God's word has helped me so much. Love from New Zealand. Well, that wasn't a question, but Lenore, thank you. And again, wonderful to know people all around the globe tuning in to our live Q&A. Uh, A&R says, first of all, thank you for guiding us. Are there 12 stars behind the head of Mother Mary? What do those stars represent? Okay, you are referring to a vision that's in the book of Revelation. Let me see if I can find it clearly here quickly. Um, Revelation chapter 12. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. Now, the idea that this woman is Mary is common. It's absolutely held by Roman Catholics who often in their imagery depicting Mary will show her standing on a crescent moon and with the 12 stars around her hair. Roman Catholics are not the only ones who think that refers to Mary. I have to say, I, I don't. I think that it more generally refers to Israel. And I could go into that. So I, I believe that that more generally refers to Israel. But the 12 stars, that's one of the reasons why I believe it refers to Israel. Um, because the 12 stars represent those 12 tribes of Israel. Now, somebody says, this woman in Revelation chapter 12, she gives birth to Messiah. Obviously, it's Mary. Mary gave birth to Messiah. And I understand that. I don't think the identification of Mary here is crazy. I just don't think it's correct. Because absolutely it's true that Mary gave birth to Jesus. We're not denying that at all. And it was truly a virgin conception. She miraculously conceived in her womb. But... There is also a real and legitimate sense in which we could say that Israel gave birth to the Messiah. God gave the nation Israel the responsibility to stay together as a people, not only until, but until the Messiah would be born and delivered. Now, again, God has a continuing purpose for Israel. But just as much as you could say that Mary gave birth to Messiah, you could, in a figurative sense, say that Israel gave birth 
to the Messiah. And very clearly here in Revelation chapter 12, it's speaking in signs. That's the first few words. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. So I would look at that as not being Mary, but as being Israel. Okay, let me continue on here. Uh, we're really just going to take a few more questions. Um, Anthony. Hi, Pastor David. Good. Aragon. Yes, thank you, Anthony. It is wonderful to hear from you, brother. Uh, I love checking in on you occasionally on social media. Thank you for your compliment that it's good work. Good. Aragon. I appreciate that. God bless you, Anthony. Uh, West asks this. Uh, hello, Pastor David, on another Thursday. Love your teaching. It's really blessing my family. Well, West, I'm so pleased to hear that. God bless you, and thank you for sharing that encouragement. GMS says, how will Jesus make his return? Revelation 19 says, on a white horse. Acts 1 says, on a cloud. Isaiah chapter 66 says, with fire. Which one is it? And if they are parabolic, then explain what they mean. Well, I, I think that you could take those in a parabolic sense. The white horse being that of a conquering general. Uh, the fire being that with judgment. Jesus will return to conquer. Jesus will return with judgment. Jesus will return from the heavens, the sky to earth. Uh, and that's the reference you make there in Acts chapter 1 in a cloud. But I would just put it to you this way, uh, GMS, that I don't have a problem understanding the figurative meaning in those, but at the same time appreciating that they can and likely are literal as well. Jesus can return on a white horse in the midst of great fire, in and through the clouds coming from the sky. There's really no contradiction between those. So again, I would just say this. I recognize the figurative element in those things, but I don't think that necessarily the figurative element cancels out the uh, literal occurrence of it. So that's how I would put it. And... Um, I guess I'll just take one more um, question here from West. I see so many more great questions, but I have to cut this close uh, from about an hour here. West asks another question and says, wanted to ask, someone said, Jesus is not his name, but Yeshua. Can you explain, please? Well, West, it's pretty simple in this sense. Uh, Yeshua or Yashua is how Jesus's name would have been pronounced in Bible times. But that name translated into different languages can be Jesus, can be Joshua, can be Jesus, can be Jesus, can be many. So it's the same name, just in different translations. So we don't pronounce Bible names the way that they were originally pronounced in the Hebrew or the Greek, we take our modern language understanding of them today and pronounce them. But it's referring to the same person, 
just how a name changes in the way that it's sounded out between different languages. Well, I have to say, folks, I am a little bit disappointed. I have to cut it close here. Um, uh, I am just going to say we will um, can pick it up next time and continue on. I'll copy down and maybe in a future Q&A, I'll get to some of these questions that I could not get to. But I so appreciate you joining me today. Uh, God bless you. Thank you. Uh, and again, please remember that we're putting out these question and answers in transcript form, sort of a written version of these. Uh, it'll appear on the Enduring Word website, uh, oh, four or five days, maybe a week after this uh, live Q&A. So please, that you could join us today. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. It is so, so appreciated. God bless you, and I'll see you next Thursday. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.